0: Hello, and welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of the New York Times. Hello. And we have a jam-packed show this week. It was such a big news week, what with first republic failing and the fed hiking rates possibly for the last time and all the rest of it that we couldn't do what i actually wanted to do which was devote this entire show to my new book it's called the phoenix economy come please join me in your local independent bookstore and buy it um we will do that next week we will talk about my book next week because i'm very excited about it but we just don't have room in this week's show because there's so much going on aside from first republic which failed um, in the wake of Silicon Valley Bank and various other bank failures like Silvergate and Signature and Credit Suisse, we are going to talk about the Fed and whether that was their last rate hike. And we're going to talk about Timu, which is this crazy Chinese shopping app, which is taking America by storm. We have a Slate Plus segment, which you really should listen to because it's awesome, all about fake handbags in China. And yeah, it's all coming up on Slate Money. Okay, so we have a bank failure. Um, Wow. It it feels so long ago that First Republic failed. But in fact, it was only a week ago. Less than a week ago. It happened at 4.30 in the morning on Monday morning, which is never a good sign, really, when something takes that long. It was bigger than Silicon Valley Bank. So it's a big bank, and... Emily, is this clearly a sign that the banking crisis was not contained and that Silicon Valley Bank was not some kind of an outlier and that other banks can fall victim to the same forces that brought down Silicon Valley Bank?
2: Yes and no. The The fact alone that another bank failed, um, in this case, it was a cleaner failure because the 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 sale to J.P. Morgan was able to go through and it was pretty seamless. And, you know, the government didn't have to step in with a systemic risk exception to bail out anyone. Uninsured depositors didn't have to do that. Um, So clearly the banking crisis was not contained because there was another bank failure. So we can't say it was contained. Um, And. I think First Republic probably wouldn't have failed had Silicon Valley Bank not failed.
0: So yeah, I think I think you're you're absolutely right that um they're not the same. Um the way I like to think of it was the like if if they both failed because they lost enormous amounts of deposits and the proximate cause of First Republic Bank failing was that they came out with their for first quarter results and announced that a hundred billion dollars of deposits had left in basically the second half of March, which is an insane amount of deposits. You know, quick reminder: when Washington Mutual failed in two thousand eight, that was because of a forty-two billion dollar bank run. So you know, we are talking enormous sums of money here, and the difference is that while the Silicon Valley bank bank run was very much panic-driven. It was very much people pulling their money out for fear that they wouldn't, that they would lose it um, were the bank to fail. I think the US authorities did a pretty good job of reassuring people that the deposits in First Republic were safe. In the first case of First Republic, it wasn't so much a fear, panic driven run as a greed driven run. And the amounts of interest that First Republic could afford to pay on deposits were just simply not enough to be able to retain those deposits. And people moved their money to places that were a safer, because clearly, First Republic wasn't completely safe. But b more importantly, just paid much higher interest. And that was enough to really sort of hold First Republic below the waterline.
1: Yeah. I also think there are a couple of other factors too, you know, because the SVB run had already happened and some of it was precipitated by, um, at least according to the government's report, SVB's internal analysis over accounting or, or overestimating the extent to which their deposits were sticky. And, you know, you've talked a lot about consumer banking really being predicated on the idea that people don't really move their accounts very much because it's difficult in the U.S. Um, and, and I think, First Republic had already sort of taken that risk into consideration, at least internally, everybody understood that it was a problem. And the other thing is that First
0: Republic... So so wait, wait, yeah. let me just stop you there. When you say that First Republic had taken that risk into consideration and they understood it was a problem, like, what does that mean and how did that... And, I mean, and, I like-
1: think when, when SVB failed, they, they knew immediately that it was going to be a risk for them too because their deposit base is not... Totally dissimilar to SVB. There's a lot of overlap. You know, if you look at the early stage companies and and entrepreneurs who were getting mortgages from SVB, a lot of them also had accounts at First Republic, and they moved to First Republic when the bank run happened with SVB. So I think, you know, they they knew that it was a risk after SVB collapsed, and then that's right.
0: But no- knowing that it's a risk doesn't help you, right?
1: Well, I think it helps you prepare. <laughs> you prepare for the inevitability in the way that. SVB really seems to have not done that.
0: Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I don't, think, I don't think any bank could really prepare for a bank run of this magnitude. Really, the thing that allowed First Republic to withstand $100 billion of deposit flight was not any kind of preparation that they did internally. It was the Federal Reserve throwing the discount window wide open and basically lending unlimited amounts of money to banks to cover deposit flight at the discount window. And um, as we saw, the Federal Republic took full advantage of that and had massive debts to the Fed and to the federal home loan banks when it failed, all of which were repaid. Um, to Emily's point, there's a really interesting little um, quirky difference between SVB and First Republic, which was that in SVB's case, the the FDIC and the Treasury declared the systemic risk exception that would allow the FDIC to insure all deposits rather than just deposits under 250,000. In the First Republic case, they didn't declare the systemic risk exception. And yet all deposits remained um, safe because JP Morgan assumed All of those liabilities, you know, all of those deposits are now at J.P. Morgan, and they're perfectly safe because they're J.P. Morgan. Um, And everyone's sort of patting themselves on the back for saying, like, we didn't need to invoke the systemic risk exception. But there's this weird thing here going on, which is that the FDIC is still losing $13 billion, right? Right. And you're like, if J.P. JP Morgan hadn't been arm-twisted into keeping all of those liabilities, those uninsured deposits, then the FDIC wouldn't have lost $13 billion. $13 billion, by coincidence, is roughly the amount of uninsured deposits that were left at First Republic. So it's it, it's a kind of insurance of the uninsured deposits, even if technically it isn't.
2: Right. And I mean, and then you could argue, so the FDIC is obligated to sort of do the cheapest the the, the deal that it has the least cost to it that's like the law
0: it's it's yeah, it's a little bit it's not
2: that's the law
0: i mean yeah, it's so called, yeah called like the
2: least cost basis or the, something the
0: FDIC is meant to do that but it can be blocked by the OCC and the OCC made the decision not to block it right the OCC is the a- agency that basically says too big to fail banks are already too big and they can't grow by acquisition, right? And so they're the agency that historically would always block any merger between J.P. Morgan and anyone else. And the OCC was the agency that ultimately basically, you know, it was the dog that didn't bark. They very consciously didn't object to this merger and they allowed it to go through.
2: It's my understanding that there is an exception built into the rule that big banks can't get bigger if the bank they're trying to acquire is insolvent.
1: They can I mean, there's get there's an inherent tension in yeah. there between you know the the regulators, the banking regulators need to maintain financial stability throughout the system, and then antitrust regulators need to, uh, you know, keep the banks at a certain size. So, but in this yeah, case. I, the,
0: yeah, in in this case, the the amount by which J.P. Morgan grew was was pretty tiny, right? Like they went from, you know, whatever it was, $3.4 dollars $3.4 of assets to three point five trillion dollars of assets, or something like that, right? It's not like gonna make a. It's not really moving the needle in terms of the size of J.P. Morgan because J.P. Morgan is so unimaginably enormous, and also because First Republic had shrunk quite a bit before it failed.
2: But that's what I, I wanted to talk about a little more, maybe, Felix, because it's interesting. That, so they, they saw $100 billion leave the bank um, kind of slowly relative to what happened with Silicon Valley Bank before it failed. $100 billion were taken out. And you're saying it's because people sort of woke up and realized they could get better interest rates elsewhere. But I think it was also because people saw what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and they were like, eh, I don't really want to stick around here and I could get better interest rates elsewhere. Let's go. Like it was more right. of a slow moving thing than a bank run. It
0: was it was pretty fast, but it wasn't a run. It wasn't like a rush for the exits, everyone trying to get out before it closed necessarily. Mm-hmm. Like as a First Republic customer, I can tell you that like nothing has changed. And I think that was entirely foreseeable, that nothing has changed nothing would change. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, as Elizabeth can attest as an SCB customer, like nothing has changed there either, right? there's no there's nothing to worry about from a consumer perspective um, in terms of having your bank fail and having it get taken over by someone else. Elizabeth is now a customer of First Citizens Bank. I'm a customer of J.P. Morgan, but you know our routing numbers are the same. Our account numbers are the same. In the case of First Republic, my like my assigned personal banker guy who i can call or email and ask questions about my account is the same guy he's still there he's now an employee of jp morgan so there were the customers of first republic who moved their money out i think some of them didn't necessarily understand that i do think there's a lack of sophistication in among Americans who don't entirely understand how bank failures work and how bank failures resolve, and they do worry, like, if my bank fails, then I'm going to have to change my bank, and it's going to be terrible, and I should move my bank out, I should move my money before that happens. In reality, it's fine. The FDIC and the banking system are totally set up to be able to make this incredibly seamless from a customer point of view.
2: Now, there there is a group for whom it does make sense if you see your bank failing to move your money, and that's a very small group, and that's those with un, with deposits over $250,000. There's not that many actual people like that. It's mostly, it's, you know, it's mostly, I think, companies, and it's very few. 99% of accounts, more than 99% of accounts at banks in the U.S. are insured. Although FIB
0: was an exception there. Like most, yeah. uh, FIB had a lot of uninsured deposits. But if again, that's you,
2: if you have uninsured deposits, you do then have a reason to be like, you know what, I'm moving out of here. Well, because it's not 100% clear that you're going to get paid out in full though that has happened in all these in in these three bank failures so far it hasn't yeah. always happened historically so then it makes so sense
0: so th- there's well you basically have two choices right if what you want is a hundred percent certainty that your money is insured and you're not willing to just trust joe biden and janet yellen and um jay powell on like saying that your money is safe but you want you want it like absolutely cast iron guarantee then you do this thing called brokered deposits, right? You can go along to First Republic or any other bank in the country and say, like, I want, I want brokered deposits. I want the money in my bank account to be basically divvied up among a whole bunch of other insured banks. It costs, sometimes they'll do it for free, sometimes they'll do it for a tiny fee. But it's actually really easy to make sure that sort of single digit million dollar accounts are insured um that is a product that exists it is sold basically by the private sector the banks have worked it out between them and it works pretty well so yeah you have you have the choice you can either just say can you please broker my deposit so i'm fully insured or you can do what you said which is just pull your money out entirely and move it somewhere else and that feels a bit sort of a bit more panicky especially if you have you know, happy vibes with your bank, which, you know, the net promoter scores for First Republic were off the charts.
2: Right. I guess there are two other things I wanted to bring up in this conversation. One is like, does this crisis actually matter (laughs) to real people and to the economy overall? I mean, it definitely matters to the stocks of these banks that have fallen a lot and to anyone who holds the stocks of the banks. Okay, but- more broadly, like we just got a jobs report on Friday that was great. Um, I don't know. Does, does it matter?
1: It, it speaks to confidence in the overall banking system, especially when you see the markets react the way that they have to PacWest and Western Alliance. Uh, but I don't know that, you know, m- where where are most consumer accounts concentrated, in, in more uh, large banks or regionals? Large banks. Yeah. So... Probably to the average person, it, it doesn't matter that much unless they start to conflate these specific situations with the stability of the overall system.
0: Well, again, as I say, like for, for an average person, it really doesn't matter where you are, right? It, you, you don't have anything to worry about. You don't have to worry about your, losing your money. You don't have to worry about your bank failing because even if your bank does fail, life goes on entirely normally, right? So for a normal person, no one has anything to worry about. From a systemic point of view, There are, I think, two things to worry about. One is just that the forces that brought down um, SCB and First Republic, which are basically high interest rates, um, and what they do to banks' net interest margins, um, are forces that have weakened the profitability of the banking sector as a whole. The funding costs of the banking sector have risen by roughly five percentage points since this hiking cycle started um, at the margin. And the amount they can charge in loans has not gone up by five percentage points, it's gone up less than that. So they're less profitable than they used to be. They, as we have seen, are increasingly unable to rely on depositors to be lazy and just keep their money in the checking account and earning 0% because it's actually very easy to move your money to savings accounts earning four and a half five 5% at this point. So the banking sector is going to make less money. When the banking sector is going to make less money, that means it's probably going to make fewer loans and that's going to slow down the economy. That's going to be a headwind on the economy. And then the other thing which Elizabeth touched on is people really care about share prices these days this is like a post-pandemic phenomenon we saw it in the meme stock winter of 2021 um and there's so many headlines about look at this share price and look at that share price for me like bank share prices are not incredibly interesting um but I have a reasonably strongly held belief, I'm not I'm not sure about this, but I'm, you know, I believe it to be true, that if Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic had been like credit unions or not publicly traded, that they wouldn't have failed that it was actually the proximate cause in both cases of the bank failure was the share price going down and the share price causing that erosion of trust in the institution. And I do worry that people are overextrapolating from volatile share prices, and that could be a problem. Um, I also worry that the American Bankers Association and various other banky types are coming out and making noises about like banning short sales of banks, which I think is a terrible idea. But like that shows a degree of sort of panic in the banking system, which I think is indicative of something bigger and more dangerous happening.
2: Yeah. I was I've been thinking about the bank stocks kind of a lot because I think it's reasonable that those stock prices have fallen so much because yeah. um First Republic, you know, its shares are now worth nothing. Like the shares got wiped out, right, when it failed. Um After yes, depositors depositors came out okay, but investors did not. So if I'm an investor who invests in banks, I'm like, oh, these things aren't worth what I thought they were. Like, they're not as safe as I thought they were, et cetera. And so, of course, they're going to fall a lot. Um, I, I I don't know. First Republic would have failed, though. It wasn't just the stock price. It was – well, it was the fact that it was a public company and had to come out and, and fess up and save well, it mean, $100 all, billion. All, all, banks need
0: to, all banks need to file call reports every quarter, which will show what happens to their deposits, whether they're public or private, right? So that, But the fact is that normal human beings don't pay attention to call reports. Right. Normal <laughs> human beings do pay attention to share prices. Yes,
2: right, share prices and announcements.
1: and uh, You know, when I wrote this uh, op-ed saying that SVB's bank run was partly precipitated by some VCs getting panicky, um, you would be surprised how many supposedly sophisticated uh people in in my Twitter feed were responding to me and saying no it's because the share price dropped and then that sort of that reinforces a little bit of what Felix is saying which is it's not like these people went into the filings and you know really examined the balance mm-hmm. sheet or anything it's uh they were reacting to market reaction
2: that I mean you could blame some of that on the business press you know for the past Decades focusing well not on me (laughs) focusing so much on the stock market as the the thermometer for everything you know so we've been trained to to think of the stock market as the thermometer for the economy and for reality and so of course if you see these stocks and people have been socialized
1: by politicians to believe that you know whenever you see uh, Donald Trump getting up every day of his administration and pointing to the Dow as if it's the primary economic indicator that matters. When it's yep. not really an indicator at
0: all <laughs> yeah and and then and then the other the other problem is that number one you have to be right Emily that it, it's an it is treated as an economic indicator and an indicator of health um but the other thing is that there has always been a large segment of the business press that is aimed at stock market traders and speculators and investors right? right who look at the stock who who consider the stock market to be a place where they can make money and they want to buy stocks that are going up and sell stocks that are going down and that kind of thing and and that kind of journalism or you know of like here's stocks which are going up here's stocks which are going down um if you are someone who actively plays in the stock market you should care about this I find unbelievably boring and useless. And I would quite happily abolish it all. But the fact is that to a normal person, it's basically impossible to tell the difference between that kind of journalism and journalism about companies, which just happens to report on the share price. Right. And, and and like the big headline all too often is, you know, such and such a company's share price moved. And when you see that, big headline, we see big headlines screaming about, you know, PacWest share price is down 50% or whatever. Um, It is entirely rational for a consumer of news to go, well, this wouldn't be a big headline if it wasn't important.
1: Yeah. And this is a, there's a little bit of a, this is kind of inside baseball, but a little bit of a structural problem in financial journalism, where there are a lot of publications that don't prioritize coverage of anything in the market that doesn't relate to market movements, because on the basis that, you know, they're not going to cover, for example, uh, hedge funds very much because the average person can't invest in them. I mean, I've I've been at finance publications where that was part of the mandate. It was, you know, we'll cover public companies and things that the average retail investor has access to. Um,
0: I I will say if you, um, lovely Slate Money listener, who I like very much, is someone who does invest in the market um, the one thing you should know is that if you're buying or selling bank stocks bank stocks by their nature are just incredibly significantly more volatile than most other stocks because they are significantly more levered that because of the way that fractional fractional reserve banking works um, the amount of the sort of the ratio of liabilities to um, equity, at a bank is way higher. Um, you know, it's like 10 to 1 compared to maybe 1 to 1 at a normal company. And so you you just wind up with a situation where it's incredibly easy for a bank to go to zero and much easier for a bank, you know, common equity to go to zero than it would be for, you know, a widget manufacturer's common equity to go to zero.
2: I mean, should banks stop, banks not be publicly traded? I mean, the, the support of, the, you know, banks are kind of quasi-governmental uh, companies, if you ask me, because the government backstops all deposits and I won't let indeed. them fail. Yes, um, But they don't do anything to help the stock price, so maybe they shouldn't be public. Maybe that's weird.
0: Well, I mean, the idea is, and and it's, I think, perfectly correct, that you need people to take that first loss tranche, right? The, if you have a risky institution, then you want people who are who have high risk appetite owning the riskiest tranche of the of the mm-hmm. capital stack which is the common stock and then you want people who have maybe a bit less risk appetite but still a substantial amount of risk appetite owning the second riskiest bit of the capital stack which is the bonds right and the place that you find those in greatest abundance is the public markets so on that level it makes sense for people in the public markets with high-risk appetite to be buying these securities. Um, the problem happens when people think, or people like retail investors, start thinking of bank stocks as though they're just shares of companies like any other shares of companies, and they're really not. They're very unique um, animals in many ways.
2: So st- people who invest in bank stocks are like, the soldiers at the front of the line, you know, and they just get mowed down.
0: Yeah, exactly. Horrifying. Let's um, take a quick break and then talk a bit about monetary policy because, yeah, there's a lot going on there too.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery. Wondery And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more Wondery Means Business. Okay, Emily, we have a couple of very big things going on here in terms of the Federal Reserve. They raised rates by a quarter point this week. And the big question is, is that the end of the of the hiking cycle, is the next move by the Fed going to be up or down? And no one seems to know the answer to that. If the banking crisis gets significantly worse, then that could cause a financial crisis. And in order to help stabilize the financial system, maybe the Fed will be forced to cut rates. On the other hand, as you mentioned, we had an incredibly strong jobs report on Friday, and that showed that the broader economy seems to be at least so far pretty much unaffected by the banking crisis, and the the Fed has really not taken the fuel out of the economy that they were worried about, and that they might need to continue to hike before they're you know satisfied that inflation is going to come back down to that two percent target. Um, it's a kind of tough place for the Fed to be, but the good news for the Fed, is that they have, you know, a month and a half to wait and see what happens.
2: Yep. I mean, it's all just so, it all comes down to firming. I don't know if you guys know about firming, but in the last, the last time, the Fed puts out, you know, a statement before it, when it raises rates. And in March, put out a statement that said something like, we anticipate that some additional policy firming may be appropriate, which in English just means like, we think we'll probably raise rates again. And then when they put out their statement this month, they took the sentence out and they said something like, "The extent to which additional firming may be appropriate over time, we'll take into account factors," which means like shruggy, like it means like (laughs) we're keeping our eye on the economy and we'll see what happens, and then we may or may not raise rates. And I'm not just making up that it's significant. Like Fed Chair Powell said. In his press conference, he was like, you'll notice that sentence is gone. Like, it's so bananas, right? Like, just say in English what you mean. But anyway, it's fine. He just said firming. So, I mean, I don't think they know what's going to happen next month. But instead of saying we're, we're in their way, <laughs> we're definitely going to raise rates. They're saying we're going to see what happens. So, like, yeah, we're going to see what happens in the economy. And,
0: and when when the statement came out, the markets were basically pricing in a rate cut this year. Yeah, uh, that pretty much disappeared on Friday morning when the jobs report came out. Now the markets are like, yeah, no.
2: To the but I mean you could to the idea read- of a
0: rate cut. That doesn't mean they expect another rate hike, but it does mean that basically, I think and and I guess my base case assumption, you know, and it's low you know i I have no particularly strongly held prediction here but i would expect the most likely outcome is that rates stay where they are for the rest of the year and that they neither hike nor cut for the rest of the year
2: i mean it's worth just stepping back and acknowledging like they raised rates really high in a really short amount of time and it created like a lot of drama and chaos and crisis like the bank the the previous segment we just talked about wouldn't have happened if these dudes hadn't kept raising rates so much in such a short amount of time like the stock market fell a lot a lot last year because they raised rates in such a short amount of time the housing market has come to kind of a standstill because they raised rates in such a short amount of time like they have unleashed a lot of chaos into <laughs> the economy
1: they're also just in a no win position you know uh wages also went up in the report um, and so, the, the, really, rate hikes are the only tool that they have to meaningfully fight inflation, at least in theory. But if they keep hiking rates. You know, you see the sort of the, the problems with that. And if we get pushed into recession, it'll be the Fed's fault, as far as consumers are concerned. Yeah,
0: the Fed, the Fed has said very, very explicitly that if they need to push the country into recession in order to bring down inflation, then they're happy to do that. Like. That that is not even a trade-off they're worried about. They're, they're saying that we are going to do everything we can to bring inflation down. And if that means recession, then so be it. Although obviously we hope that it doesn't. Um, I will say that in terms of wages, we're running at about 4.4, 4.5% year on year, something like that. And that is fine. That is not inherently inflationary. That's where we were pre-pandemic. That, you know, we we saw that kind of wage growth um with you know, below target inflation for many, many years. So I'm not. I don't think that wages are at this point a major driver of inflation. By the same token, though, no, it doesn't seem that they're going to be a driver of bringing inflation down to where the Fed wants it to be.
2: I mean, it's been really interesting to see how resilient the labor market has been to the rate hiking cycle, like unlike the stock market and the housing market, the things I just said, like the labor market's just kind of chugging along. We've Uh, created over a a
0: million jobs just this year.
2: Yeah. But I mean, if you look at a chart month to month, like the number of jobs added goes down like a little smidgy bit. So it does look like it's slowing down a little bit. You kind of
0: need to squint.
2: But yeah, but when they started hiking rates, everyone was like, oh my gosh, they're going to hike rates. (laughs) Unemployment's gonna really jump and like progressive lawmakers are still out there saying this. Elizabeth Warren's like, you have to stop hiking rates because unemployment, blah, blah, blah. Me- meanwhile, like,
0: black unemployment just hit 4.7%, which is an all-time low. The first time it's ever been below 5.5%. Right. And yeah.
2: So it's like maybe it's time for and you know, it takes a long time for these things to shake out, but like maybe it's time for the economists to go back to their little models and think again about how. The um, thing, again, about the link between raising rates and unemployment, because it does feel like it's different than it used to be. It, it, I think it feels that very different.
0: The models aren't working. And as our colleague, Courtney Brown, mentioned on Friday in her newsletter, like, it feels like we're in a completely unprecedented situation. We've yes. never had a labor market or a rates market like this. We're we're in uncharted territory here, and no one really knows what works I think and what part doesn't.
2: of it, and, but this is only part of it that I think about, like, when everyone goes back and looks at the connection between rate hiking and unemployment, they look at the 70s and 80s when they hiked rates a ton and unemployment hit like 10% at one point. Back then, like labor could demand really high wages and they really had a legitimate wage price spiral. But now, um, it's just labor isn't as strong as it was at that time. So I feel like that kind of helps keep things in check in a way that wasn't possible before. I don't that's one of my crackpot theories.
0: I, I like your crackpot theories. Keep them yeah. coming.
2: All right.
0: <laughs> Let's take another break and talk about Timu. Emily, what is Timu? <laughs> I called it to me earlier. Like, I don't need I, I cannot download this app because if I do, I know I will be just socially engineered into buying a massive amount of junk that i really really do not need and the only way i can avoid doing this is by not downloading the app therefore i know nothing about this company
1: brand wise Timo is is sort of the opposite of to me which is a- <laughs>
0: <laughs> right to me is the extre- extremely expensive luggage right and this is extremely cheap luggage and everything else that you could yes. possibly want
2: yeah, yeah. so Timu is this kind of like unhinged Chinese shopping app, essentially where you open it up and they're selling you like just all kinds of random stuff. Um, something to clean your earbuds, your AirPods with um, really cheap off-brand Air AirPods. Um, what did I see? I saw rugs. I saw those little, those little things you put in your Crocs. Those little. I don't know what they're called. You can get like 100 of those for like 50 cents. Um, just like all the crap that's made in China, you can get in this in this app. And I hope Patrick will play for listeners the Super Bowl commercial because that maybe so give you a sense oh, too. Yeah. I feel like a
0: billionaire. I'm shopping
2: like a billionaire. I'm shopping like a billionaire. Let's go. T-move, t-move. I'm
0: shopping like a Shop like a billionaire. I love this. The idea being that everything is so cheap, you can buy whatever you like without it impacting your checking account to any visible degree. And you can just you can just (laughs) splurge. And and I like that as a kind of aspirational. Like
1: You can impulse buy a million things for the cost of a Starbucks coffee.
2: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can. And it and the shipping is relatively slow. Um, we it, are yeah, talking it takes about like Two this. or three
0: weeks but like you know, exactly. Like at this point, you're buying a stuffed tardigrade for your seven year old. <laughs> I'm like, like, does the seven year old care whether it arrives tomorrow or in three weeks? No, it does no. not. Am I right, Elizabeth? Are you buying that stuffed tardigrade?
1: No, but I, I have to say I I just downloaded the app this morning. And the first thing I saw was, you know, they, they have smaller vendors that are usually based in China, directly selling things, was a vendor named uh, John Maynard Keynes selling wraparound sunglasses <laughs> for $3.67. Amazing.
0: <laughs> um, so the reason we're talking about this is because John Herman, who is amazing, wrote this really smart piece about it in New York Magazine. Um, and he made this point. Which is basically that we have gone from a world where Amazon would source products from Chinese manufacturers and then sell them to Americans, to a world where Amazon basically allowed the Chinese manufacturers to list stuff directly on Amazon.com as part of the Amazon Marketplace, and so you you had the direct the the manufacturers just directly selling to US consumers, but via a US app to where we are now, where the Chinese sellers are selling directly to US consumers via a Chinese app, and there's no American intermediation whatsoever. And I think we're seeing, we've seen this with shine in fashion as well. Um, And I just got back from a little trip to Morocco and because I'm old, I remember the days when, you know, when traveling to less wealthy countries meant that things cost less. But given what's happened to sort of globalization and supply chains, like that's really not the case anymore. That we, you know, the technology that connects Americans via apps like Timu to low-cost manufacturers in China is so sophisticated at this point that goods just cost whatever they cost wherever you are in the world, and that kind of like traveler's arbitrage has completely disappeared.
2: And it's interesting to think about at the same time. I mean, this is making this is globalization. This is you know you're going direct to the manufacturers in China, and Chinese apps have figured a way to sell into these markets where they used to have an intermediary. That's globalization, but it's coming at a time when everyone's talking about decoupling China from the economy. And, you know, countries are worried about it. But what's really happening on the ground is quite the opposite.
1: Yeah, I think we should also mention that Timu has some of the same political problems that um, TikTok has. There's some concern about data mining and things like that. And surveillance.
2: Well, the the company's ownerships kind of hazy. Like, if you if you read in John Herman's piece, he's like the brand is headquartered in Boston. It has a sister company, Pin Duo Duo, based in China, both owned by a company called PDD Holdings, which is publicly traded, um, and was headquartered in Shanghai until this year, and now it's headquartered in Ireland. Yeah. So that's a lot of. I don't know how to. Felix, you unpack that. You'll 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 unpack I mean, this for us.
0: The TLDR is that yeah, it's basically Chinese. But <laughs> <laughs> but um but yeah, there are, there's obviously a bunch of regulatory arbitrage going on here.
2: Yeah. Okay, so it's still it's it's just Chinese companies doing and, all kinds of shit. Yeah, if
0: if it becomes a major cultural phenomenon as it does seem to be doing, then I'm sure the China hawks in Congress are going to start making noises about it because that's what they do.
2: But, I mean, while social media and TikTok may be controversial and we can wring our hands about the children. There's
0: nothing more American than shopping.
2: Yes, that's what I was <laughs> going to say. Like, you can't keep Americans away from, like, $3.99 for, you know, a shelf you can install into your kitchen for reasons to put your sponge or something. Like, you can't. That's a That would be unconstitutional to take away my right to cheap stuff. Don't Quite do right that, to. Congress. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, I want to... Talk about the less crappy end of Chinese import markets in the form of extremely high-quality handbags. We can do that in Slate Plus. Um, But for the time being, we should probably have a numbers round. Emily, do you have a number?
2: Yes. I was this number. I wanted to do it because Felix talked about chicken sexing a few episodes ago. I don't know if people will remember. (laughs) My number is 6.5 billion. Okay. 6.5 billion is the number of male chicks that are killed as soon as they're hatched each year. Ah! ah! Um, I didn't know anything about this, but um, in an article called Save the Male Chicks, <laughs> which is just a good title in Vox, um, I learned that the poor little cute male chicks are um, tossed into grinders as soon as they're born because they're not valuable in the industry because they don't lay eggs, and their meat, I guess, isn't as good. Um, but now don't worry. some countries have banned this practice because it's icky, you know it, it's sad to think about the little chicks, and so they've banned it like Germany and France, and also there are new technologies that allow you to sex the chicks in the eggs before they're born.
0: Oh, you see are we is is this technology is this artificial intelligence <laughs> putting chicken sexists out of work?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I don't know I, <laughs> Maybe. But in the U.S., there's no no push for this. So we're, like, very behind the curve on no one cares about the male chicks in the U.S. But maybe they will if they read this Vox piece, Save the Male Chicks by
0: and, Kenny Terrell. But well, we're not really saving them. We're just preventing them from being born in the first place.
2: Right. You could have a whole, like, pro-life kind of, like, uh, <laughs> really deep debate. You could get really political with it, I, I suppose, if you wanted to.
0: If you wanted to. Um, Elizabeth, what's your number?
1: Uh, my number is 450,000, and that's the number of tech layoffs. A guy named Roger Lee is cataloged on a site called layoffs.fyi that just uh, operates within the tech sphere. And he started it at the beginning of the pandemic as just kind of a spreadsheet, and now has sort of turned it into a business because the government doesn't really provide really granular data on layoffs by sector. So, you know, if you read a Times story about layoffs or something, you know, it'll probably quote layoffs.fyi. But um, the prof- there's a profile of this guy in the Times, and he seems like a, just a very optimistic, sunny Pollyanna type. So the silver lining for his uh, layoffs business is that he's starting another one that just covers compensation for tech executives, uh, which is kind of like the flip side of the layoffs piece of it and recruiters are using the layoffs piece of it to find new engineers and you know new labor so I so profiled he had, so this, this
2: guy is, last year. I just, I don't oh, usually, okay. I'm not one of those reporters, but I'm just saying, I profiled Roger Lee last year. And I also wrote about the launch of his compensation site. I just, I
0: just, yeah, we can the, even cut the, this. The New York Times is, is very late to Emily's story. They're just copying <laughs> Emily. Guys, no, his, just, their
2: story was really good. Like they had more words <laughs> available to them, but um, yeah, um, he's been doing this for a while. But, also read,
0: but also read Emily. Read yeah, Axios if you Markets. want to be ahead of
2: the curve, subscribe to Axios Markets.
0: Layoffs.fyi is the new fuckedcompany.com,
2: and it's true. They um, it's so interesting with layoffs because you know, it used to be people were a little embarrassed about getting layoffs, but n- getting laid off. But now people, as soon as they're laid off, they like they post about it, and then there's always these spreadsheets. Not always, but often. Um, people within the company I'll make a big spreadsheet of contact information for everyone and then yeah and then the recruiters get a hold of it and reporters too and uh, it's all very transparent and nice especially in tech.
0: Um, talking of layoffs my um, my publicist at HarperCollins got laid off last no, week which was no. very sad <laughs> and it's the launch week for my book so my no. my shameless number this week is 32 dot one nine that's the number of dollars that you can buy the audiobook of the phoenix economy for if you go to libro.fm a lot of people don't realize that you can buy audiobooks just on their own you don't need to buy some expensive weird amazon audible subscription thing um you can buy them from independent bookstores it's basically the same thing as bookshop.org you can buy this audiobook and support your local bookstore at Libro.fm. It costs $32.19. And you support your local bookstore and you support me. And it's very good and it is read by me. So if you are a Slate Money listener who likes listening to me, then please buy my book um, at Libro.fm. That would be lovely. Thank you.
2: And people, if they don't buy the audio, they could buy the regular book. And yes. we're going to talk about it next week. Right, Felix?
0: Correct. So We they had too much to week. talk about this week, so we couldn't do it this week. But we'll talk <laughs> about it next week.
2: So buy it today. Get it delivered by Amazon to your on house. On Tuesday. By, the, by probably Saturday or Sunday. Amazon no, it, it, moves fast. It
0: will arrive on Tuesday. It'll arrive it. on Tuesday. Yeah. Okay. Or buy then, it at your local independent bookstore.
2: Then cram
0: <laughs> so that
2: you're ready for next Saturday's slate money you'll have thoughts. And you can ma- you can email Felix your questions ahead of the episode.
0: Exactly. I have written a bunch of bits and pieces that you can read to prepare on axios.com. Um, if you just go to my author page, you'll see a bunch of those. And there's a piece in the Boston Globe, which is kind of excerpt as well, which you can read. And I think airmail has an excerpt. Anyway, there's a few different places, but come back next week and we will talk about... The Phoenix Economy, in much greater detail. So until then, thanks for your emails. Let me know what you want me to talk about about the book. And thank you to Patrick Fort for producing. And we'll be back on Monday with Slate Money Succession.